0: May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So, since this is the season of Lent, I feel all right in beginning my sermon this way, which is to say, I have a confession to make. And that is quite simply that I have not been born again. I have not in my life had a time where I knelt down in a moment of emotional or spiritual vulnerability and prayed what we call the sinner's prayer and invited Jesus into my heart as Savior. Now, I think you might need to know a little bit about my history to make sense of this, and maybe it won't be too shocking once you know it, but I am one of those rare breeds called a cradle Episcopalian, meaning my parents were already Episcopalians when I was born, and I was baptized when I was about four months old. I was confirmed at the proper appointed time, which at that point was 12 years of age. I served as an acolyte in elementary school and all the way through high school. Things happened in my faith life when they were supposed to happen. I certainly had moments of emotional encounters with God at summer camps or at retreats, but I never had that, quote, born-again moment that so many of my other friends would describe to me. I grew up in Alabama in the 1980s, 1990s. And so most everybody I knew went to some sort of church. And I even went for a time to a Southern Baptist elementary school. So it was pretty common in my life to have conversations that would eventually turn to when were you saved, when were you born again? When they would come up, I would sort of stand there shifting around waiting for the topic to move on. My discomfort came not so much because the language they used was unfamiliar, but because when they talked about it, they seemed to have a certainty that I lacked. They could point to a concrete moment in time, a feeling. They could describe the music as it swelled, the weight of the hands of the pastor on them as they said these well-worn words. And when they stood up and moved back to their seats, they knew that they had been saved, that they had been born again. As I grew older, I realized that my friends experienced the same doubts and uncertainties I did, and they would find their way back again and again to certainty by being born again and again and again. In time, this simple phrase, born again, that described their restoration to certainty of their faith would be twisted to begin to describe who was really saved and who was not. I can tell you from experience in those circles that infant baptism and real wine at communion get you lumped in with Roman Catholics and most decidedly not born again and not saved. And all of this language that, was, that I learned in my youth about being born again comes from this gospel reading. You may have missed it. Our translation translates the language here as born from above, but for so long it was translated as you must be born again. And so what is an Episcopalian to do when out of the very mouth of Jesus, these words, you must be born again, comes? I think it's important to consider the story that this happens in. This passage comes from the Gospel of John, and John is filled with symbols. He doesn't throw language around lightly. And if we take a minute to look at the details, I think we'll begin to see what maybe Jesus was talking about. So we know a couple of things, if, you've, if you read around the passage. We know this takes place in Jerusalem. We know that this is after Jesus' miracle at the wedding of Cana. So he is beginning to perform miracles and signs. We know that in this scene, before Nicodemus gets there, it seems that Jesus is alone alone. There's not the usual references to disciples or crowds around him. And we know that this happens at night. Mm -hmm. And into this scene comes Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a leader of the people. Now, we might be quick to assume that Nicodemus is sneaking around at night trying to hide something. And that's probably correct. He is a leader of the people in the temple and being seen with Jesus is not going to advance his standing in his community. But we sometimes give Nicodemus short change because we miss what he opens this conversation with. He comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Nicodemus begins this conversation with, with a statement of faith. It's not complete yet, but he begins it with a statement of faith. Then we go back and forth with Jesus and Nicodemus, and Jesus announces the need to be born again, and Nicodemus, in very rabbinical, temple-study fashion, goes to the extreme of saying, well, how can you be born again after you've already grown old? And then Jesus gives this wonderful passage of what is born of the flesh is flesh and what is born of the spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So that is with everyone who is born of the spirit. When I hear Jesus' description of being born from above, being born again, I don't hear in it a requirement of a special prayer said on a particular day that may be offered over and over again. What I hear in that is a call for Nicodemus and me and you to leave the comfort and safety of the womb to step out of the shadows into the life of the Spirit and to live a life born of that Spirit. Jesus' offering of rebirth isn't about individual certainty of salvation, but is instead about a rebirth that changes your life so that others may know God through Jesus and the Spirit through your life. The rebirth is not so much about the individual, but is about the effect that the individual will bring to the world around them. This is the rebirth. This is a kind of rebirth that accepts and lives into that oh so famous verse at football games. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't seem that Nicodemus understands Jesus' teaching. His last words when he leaves is, how can these things be? And we assume that he leaves and goes back out into the darkness and returns to his life as usual. But if you read the whole gospel, you know that Nicodemus is changed by this experience. The next time he shows up in the Gospel of John, he is with the temple guards as they're talking about how they can arrest Jesus. And Nicodemus speaks up on behalf of Jesus and says, we cannot arrest or convict someone without a trial. And then the last time that we see Nicodemus is at what many folks thought was the end of the story. It is after the crucifixion that Nicodemus, with Joseph of Arimathea, receives the body of Jesus from the cross. It is Nicodemus who brings kingly amounts of spices and oil to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. And being there at that moment is important when you consider Nicodemus. Because while Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, at this point in the story, after the crucifixion, when the physical and worldly threat was the greatest, when the disciples had run from Jerusalem out of fear of arrest, it is Nicodemus that comes to receive our Lord's body and prepare him for burial. This transformation that happens in Nicodemus is what I think being born again means. It means stepping out into light and sharing your faith even when the risks are high and the benefits seem low. Being born again is Abraham's response to God, trusting enough to leave everything that he knows and taking the huge risk so that he could be faithful to God's call and could become the father of many nations. Being born again isn't about certainty of faith, isn't about individual salvation, but is about living life bravely, filled with the Holy Spirit. So that wherever the spirit blows you, that whoever you meet, you are a witness to salvation and resurrection through Jesus. So I began the sermon with a confession. And I certainly meant that very specific understanding of born again. That has not happened in my life. And I'm not putting down or diminishing that experience for folks that have this emotional connection with God. And I believe that these personal moments of close experience are wonderful and sustain our life of faith. But I don't think that experience should be used as a test for salvation. And I don't think personal experience is what Jesus is talking about. If we look at the story, Nicodemus has now experienced Jesus face-to-face face and seen the signs and wonders. But Jesus doesn't say to him, you have now had a personal encounter with me. You are born again. Jesus still talks about the future of what Nicodemus is supposed to do. Nicodemus's rebirth comes at the foot of the cross when he bravely takes Jesus for burial. So you got a preacher that's never prayed the sinner's prayer. Hallelujah. That has never technically accepted Jesus as my Lord and personal Savior. But I do believe that I have been born again. I do believe that I and you were saved some 2,000 years ago through a cross and an empty tomb. My individual rebirth began in 1979 when a community of Christians stood around me, adopted me into the life of faith, baptized me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and marked me as Christ's own forever. We are all called to rebirth and called to live lives of faith, not just on Sunday mornings, not just in the comfort of our churches or with our families, We are called to live lives that boldly proclaim the glory of the God that created the universe, that made a great nation from our father Abraham, that brought the people of Israel out of bondage from Egypt, and that came to us as a baby and defeated death in his resurrection. Being born again isn't about me or you It's about living a life that demonstrates that not-so-often-quoted passage, John 3, 17. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When we make salvation or being born again about us or about our individual feelings or we get trapped in a feeling of wretchedness, then we miss the gospel. We miss the good news. In that state, when our focus is on us, we take church maybe a bit too seriously. We break all those rules. We started Ash Wednesday talking about how we should keep the fast. We come in... We become exclusive about who's in or who's out. We get anxious about numbers, um, people coming into the church door, and we get here and we're just serious and anxious and focused on the negative things in life and we miss the joy. There is a hymn in our hymnal. It is not my favorite, but it's one that has been following me around for the past few months. And that hymn is called, Come Labor On. Um, It's written in the 1800s. It's got this very deliberate beat to it. We sing it at ordinations. um, We sing it at convention. And when we sing it, we sing it like, Come labor on. Like it's not a joyful hymn. Um, But it just keeps popping up there. But it tells the story about the work and ministry of the church to spread the gospel in this very kind of... I'm not sure who wrote it. It may have been a German. It's this just very deliberate kind of way. But at convention, as we came and labored on and sang that hymn, I caught a verse that I'm not sure I had heard before, that had gotten lost in the music. Um, and it begins like all the verses, come, labor on. But then it says this, Claim the high calling angels cannot share. To young and old, the gospel gladness bear. The gospel gladness bear. That is the rebirth that I think Jesus is calling for. A rebirth of life that bears the gospel gladness a rebirth of life that no longer centers on the individual, but instead seeks and serves Christ in all persons and respects the dignity of every human being, a rebirth of life that focuses not only on our individual brokenness, but proclaims the joy of the beginning of the good news of Jesus, which does begin, For God so loved the world, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Amen. Amen. Amen.